all this praying. Oh. This is such a cool community. I'm so, I'm so blessed to be part of a community like this. I love this. I appreciate all the prayers that were prayed here this morning. That was, that was beautiful. And uh, let's keep that up. Let's keep praying for the, the students and the teachers as well. Uh, we're going to jump into our study this morning. If you're new or visiting, welcome to Eastgate. Uh, my name is Rob. I am the teaching pastor here. Uh, and uh, we are in the middle of a study of the Gospel of Luke. Um, and uh, uh, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along yourself, which isn't a bad idea, because sometimes during the teaching I will be referencing back to things that we read, and I can't always get that back up on the screen. So it's nice if you have it there, either in an analog old school Bible or an app or something, and you can look at it. Uh, last week, oh, did I tell you to go to chapter 10? It's there on the screen. Uh, go to chapter 10, if you will, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 9. We looked at the cost and the possible hardships that are associated with following the Jesus way of life. And uh, we considered the ramifications of that for our own life, counting the cost of that in our own lives. Now we're in a section called the travel narrative. The travel narrative is unique to Luke's telling of the gospel. It's, the, it's, it's telling about Jesus' journey from the north in the region of Galilee in Israel all the way down to Jerusalem where he's going to be celebrating the annual Passover. So he's part of this pilgrimage that's taking place uh, and, and, and Luke is the only one of all the, the gospel writers that focuses in on this uh, period of time. So we have to understand that Jesus would be traveling with his 12 disciples and more than likely their families. But not only that, he's likely f- traveling with a large group of people from the north, for, from Galilee and that region around there, people that are Jesus fans that would be going with him and accompanying him on this journey. Uh, we saw last week that Jesus went through Samaria. Normally when the Jewish people were making that pilgrimage because there were so many tensions between the, the Samaritan people and the Jewish people, most Jewish people would actually take the long way around to get to Jerusalem. But Jesus, feeling an urgency in the mission, was cutting straight through and going through Samaria, which created a few problems we looked at last week. And you'd kind of think if you're in a place where Maybe there's some hostility and people aren't liking you or whatever. You'd kind of want to make yourself a little more scarce. Like, well, let's keep a low profile. Let's get through here and don't make eye contact and we can maybe get through this. Jesus, we're going to see, is going to do just the opposite of that. Uh, uh, As we read chapter 10, Jesus is going to send people out on mission, much like he did at the beginning of chapter 9 with just his 12 disciples. But this time they're in Samaritan territory and, and it's largely considered gentile territory so we see at this moment a glimpse of the expanding mission that jesus is on most scholars see this as a precursor to the great commission that jesus gives to the church at the end of matthew 28 Uh, so what we're going to read about today is again just as the beginning of chapter 9 is is intended to inform us as followers of jesus about what our mission is what our mission as the church is what this is all about, what we're called to. And the details and the time and the culture, all of that has changed, but the core of this mission remains intact. We can still transliterate what happened then to our lives right now. So we're going to consider what that means to us as 21st century American Christians, what Jesus' instructions and what this event means to us as the American church. So if you're there in Luke chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 1. 
It says, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples. I real quick want to mention that this is the NLT. It says 72. A lot of other translations say 70. Which is it? Is it 70 or 72? Why not? Uh, I have no idea. There's discrepancies in the manuscript, so it all depends on which manuscript you read. Is it worth arguing or worrying about? Not to me. Uh, let's round it off, and we'll just call it 70 from here on in. Uh, and he sent them ahead in pairs. Oh, I do want to mention, it says 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he had planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So obviously, Jesus has a pretty sizable group that he's traveling with because he's able to, to get you know, 70 volunteers out of this group to go on a short-term mission trip. And he sends them in twos ahead of his arrival. So it's a sort of a kind of a show-and-tell of what's coming uh, to town. Hey, guys, I want you to be aware of who's coming down the road. And the fact that this is happening in the Samaritan territory is a hint of where this good news is going. This is a worldwide mission that is unfolding here. And the mission is so urgent that Jesus seems to indicate that 70 more people heading out isn't enough. The harvest is great, he says. So pray to God. Pray the, the one who planted and who's going to reap this harvest of lives and of, of lives committed and reconciled to God to stir up more and more people to go and continue this mission. And it's important that we recognize that these 70 that he calls here don't seem special in any way. In fact, we don't know anything about them. Well, the only thing we know is that they weren't part of the original 12 because it says, it says 70 more disciples. So whether the 12 went out on this, we don't know. But these 70 were hanging around and, and, and seemed ready to be part of what it is that Jesus was doing. So we see there was no special qualifications that were necessary for these 70 to head out there. And really, the whole incident is meant to teach us something very important. And that is that following Jesus comes with a commission to share the good news, to follow in the steps of these earlier disciples, to continue on in this mission. The harvest, he said, is great. There's so much work to be done. All of us then have our place and our part in this. We're like the Blues Brothers. We all have a mission from God, each one of us. And so we realize when we were born again, we were born into this purpose to join God in this work of redeeming and restoring people in this broken world by offering reconciliation with God through Christ. Too often, and this is just the way it's been all through church history, too often we relegate this sort of activity to, to well, to people like me, like, you know, to pastors and church staff, you know, the professionals. They're the ones that are supposed to be out doing this. Though I will say that Eastgate has never been accused of being professional on any level that I can think of. But you know what I'm talking about. We normally associate this sort of thing with the people who are trained for it or whatever. And the thing is, all of us have the same calling. We have different giftings in the midst of this general, larger, overall calling. And that is to be a representation of this good news in the world. We're called to represent and to share the good news. And I know you may be thinking, oh, Rob, does that mean I've got to go get tracts and a bullhorn or something? No, none of that stuff is necessary. Well, Rob, I invite people to church all the time, but they don't seem to come. Well, you know, and that's great. That's cool. Do that. But that's actually not the good news. 
I mean, if they come here and they hang out, hopefully they're going to hear the good news as we discuss it and explore it together. But, but just inviting somebody to church, that's, that's not the good news. I see, I see what you're saying, Rob. Hey, no problem. But I'll tell you, I don't think I'm good at this because I've been telling my coworker she's going to hell for two years now and she's still not a Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's not the good news either. Uh, the good news isn't a threat. It's not moralism or nationalism. The good news is a hope-filled proclamation. Something wonderful has happened, the result of which has changed the world forever. That's what we're called to, to, to share. Yeah, but Rob, you know, I just, I don't know enough to share the good news. Because every time I get into an argument with my family members about their wrong beliefs, I lose the argument. <laughs> That's another thing. The good news is not an argument. Sharing the good news is not about winning an argument or proving that we're right and somebody else is wrong. It's not trying to get somebody to acknowledge that our views are correct. We're not called to be salespeople. We never were. Trying to convince others that a life of following Jesus is worthwhile, just like we would try to convince them to buy a timeshare. It's not like that at all. Well, well, what is it then, Rob? What am I supposed to do? Well, really, I would say the best thing to do when we consider this mission that we've been given is to, in our daily interactions, as we have opportunity, share our own story. Share what's going on in, in our lives, but share it in honesty. And what I mean by that is that we don't want to make everything seem perfect in light of Christ. Remember, we're not salespeople. We're not trying to you know, put the right spin on this so that we can get somebody to sign on the dotted line and we can put another notch in our Bible or something. We're, we're, we're human beings who've been reconciled with God and that reconciliation has created some changes in us that we can share about, that we can talk about. But our struggles are part of that story too. We never want to try to whitewash what it is that's happening here in our lives. This isn't, this isn't Instagram. We can let the flaws show in, in this. So think about your current reality right now. Think about where you are and what's going on. What's your life like? Is your life perfect? Or are there areas and things in your life that you'd like to be different? Maybe difficult circumstances that you're going through. Are there ways in which you'd like to be a better person or have a better relationship or relationships in general? Whatever it may be. Now imagine how a life submitted to God could accomplish that. How it may shape you differently and, and, and affect the way that we relate to other people. And that is a part of our story. This is what I hope for. This is my reality over here. But I do have this hope that something else can happen uh, over here. I think the best way is to tell our stories by offering a picture of our current reality, problems included, but also share the hope for change that we have. Because God is real, Christ is alive, and he's at work in our hearts and in this world. I can imagine all kinds of conversations. Oh, what a crazy year it's been. Yeah, it has been a crazy year. It's been so difficult in this resurgence of COVID. And I'm just not mentally or emotionally prepared to deal with this uh, again. Yeah, I hear you. But you know what? I have confidence. I have faith to believe that God's at work in this world and that he loves the human race and that he's going to work in such a way that he's going to bring us through this. I mean, what a great conversation starter that could be. That could lead anywhere from there. And don't be like, hey, Rob, could you repeat that? I've got to write that down. It's, it's just however it can flow 
from our lives, to be able to talk in reality about our situation and our hopes that we have and what God can do. I, I've honestly had conversations like that. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it prompt curiosity in people. And that curiosity becomes the place where the good news and our conversation intersects. And we're able to, to pass that on. But still, if you're sitting and thinking, okay, but if the good news isn't about going to church, and the good news isn't moralism or avoiding hell, then what, what is it? What is the good news, Rob? Okay, since you brought it up, let's keep reading here. Verse 3. Now go, this is Jesus talking, now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Lambs among wolves. Not wolves among wolves. Lambs among wolves. Not alpha wolves that can take over the other wolves. Lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor traveler's bag, nor extra pair of sandals. Don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, a bless- the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you, or the kingdom of God, is. we could translate that as is arriving. It's, it's in breaking. Um, I think, you know, this just struck me in this moment. So can, do we have time for me to just, what an amazing statement. He's sending them into largely Gentile territory and says, eat whatever is set before you. There's like, there's so much loaded in the back of that. That's something to take some time and think about. So do that sometime. So Jesus, he puts, he puts the same restrictions on the 70 that he put on the 12. In other words, he strips this whole thing down. They don't take a lot of equipment. You're the equipment. Just go in simplicity and trust the one who's sending you out on this mission. So that may mean, you know, the mission operates on limited resources. That's okay. The mission can stay simple that way. Simplicity speaks of contentment in this. Be content with the mission that's before you and not interested in trying to gather up all... You know, I, I wonder what it says to the world sometimes when it sees the church getting so preoccupied with getting all of the stuff that the world has to offer, all the stuff that the world is reaching and grasping for. The disciples had to rely on the generosity of the people that they came to serve now, in that culture, that was an issue of community pride and honor to see to it that travelers had a safe place to stay whenever they came through. That was a, that was a cultural thing. But even still, the ones being sent had to be humble enough to, to, to take that assistance from whomever was offering it, Gentile people included. Again, this is mind-blowing as we really think of the ramifications behind what Jesus is doing here. And the things that really jumped out to me as I was looking at this and praying about this are Jesus' instructions to offer peace and, and the healing as a sign of the kingdom's approach, of the approaching kingdom of God. And really, this is what the good news is. We want to know what the gospel is. We want to know what the good news is. This is the good news that's proclaimed throughout all of the New Testament. The good news is about God's kingdom coming to restore and redeem. That's what it's about. 
And I love this dynamic of peace that Jesus instructs them in. There's something in there. They're told to bless the house by bringing God's peace to it. And, And if God's peace isn't accepted, then it will return to the one who brought it, which is an interesting thing right there because we realize there is no one who can steal our peace if God's the one who's provided it to us. No one can take our peace from us. It returns to us. We still have it. We're not dependent on someone else's reaction or response to us or to the message that we have. And this, it's a fascinating thing here. We are active carriers of God's peace. <laughs> In a pandemic, when you think of active carriers, that's not a positive thing. But when we think of the gospel, when we think of the good news, a positive carrier of God's peace... What a great thing. I mean, if we're going to infect people with something, it would be nice to infect them with that. Peace. God's peace. That's meant to be an attribute as well as a dynamic influence of the good news mission. Peace. Peace. And, and when we're saying peace, we're not saying like peace, dude, or, or something like that. Peace, not just as the absence of conflict, When Jesus is using this terminology, he's doing it from the Jewish perspective. He's communicating the Jewish idea of of peace, the Hebrew concept, shalom. And shalom is a much more nuanced word than just the absence of conflict. It means tranquility and harmony and wholeness and completeness and security. Basically, all of the things that people long for in this broken world that this broken world can never provide. It can only come through God. Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, God was pleased to have Jesus reconcile to himself all things by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. It's so important that we get a better, more robust idea of what the gospel, what the good news is. The good news is that God, through Messiah Jesus, is breaking into this world to redeem humanity, which is going to culminate with God setting everything right, providing us with tranquility and harmony and wholeness and completeness and security that will never end. That is the good news. That's why it's called good news. The mission is to encourage people to change their minds about what will provide them peace or will make this world a better place. Forget this world's system. Forget its methods and and political machinery. Let go of the human attempt to create paradise, a project that's been going on ever since we left Eden. Let's embrace God's kingdom and find, find redemption in reconciling with our creator by receiving his love for us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what is represented throughout the entire New Testament. It's not a threat. Now, To be sure, there is another side of the coin, but it comes second. (laughs) You notice Jesus doesn't tell them to lead with this part. He leads with heal the sick and bring the peace. And then we get to verse 10. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we've abandoned you to your fate. And those words are not all specifically there in the Greek. This is the NLT trying to communicate the, the gist of it. But basically, it's the idea is we're leaving this to you. And, and know this, the kingdom of God is near. 
I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. What sorrow awaits you, Corazon and Bethsaida? Those are two towns that Jesus was ministering in up in northern Israel. For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon were famous enemies of the Israelites all through her history. Their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you'll go down to the place of the dead. Then he said to his disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. So as I said, this is the other side of the coin. And simply put, we would say that rejection of the good news will incur. What did I do? There we go. Have they been wrong the whole time? Oh, okay. (laughs) Amateurs. Okay. So the rejection of the good news is going to incur uh, a dire loss. Not everyone is going to be appreciative of this mission that we're on. Some are going to even oppose it. And God seems to fully anticipate that. That's all actually just part uh, of the narrative. I think it's interesting that the people that he's using as positive examples and negative examples... One side is the religious group, and the other side, the ones who said who said would do well, were the pagans. So that's something to kind of keep in our minds as well. But Jesus told his disciples what to do in that case, uh, to shake the dust off and move along. Shaking the dust from their feet was a symbolic action. It, it, it's basically saying that it's, it's kind of like saying it's all or nothing with God's kingdom. You know, you don't want it. You don't want God's rule. You don't want God's kingdom. Then keep everything you have. It's all yours, including your dust, including your pain. Uh, But notice Jesus never told them to to file a lawsuit or fight for the right to stay and preach or or anything like that. We're not called to force this message on the unwilling. We were never called to do that. And with apologies to Taylor Swift, we're supposed to shake it off and move on uh, in this. We're not to be picking, I know, I'm sorry. I'm way too old to use that reference. It's ridiculous. But, but the idea is that we're not supposed to be picking fights uh, with our opponents. Lambs among wolves, not alpha wolves among wolves. The good news mission avoids those who opposes and basically leaves them to their own devices. And to be sure, Jesus has some dire warnings about those who reject the good news. But reject is the operative word in this the towns where jesus ministered still had plenty of opposition to jesus especially among the religious leaders and he makes it clear there's there's no plan b here and sometimes and listen it's it's a reasonable question that comes up in people's minds but how can we say that god is so loving you know god loves you he wants to save you but you know if you reject it well he's going to burn you alive Uh, it sounds contradictory in, in that sense but that's actually not what's being said in these. And that's what we have to have clear in our minds that to reject Jesus, this is the idea. To reject Jesus is to reject, we could say, the lifeboat in this. If one refuses the rescue, he's saying there's not a second option coming along. So that when this world system sinks and goes away, those who stubbornly allied with that sinking ship are going to sink with it. This is all about choice. Because love always leaves room for a choice. 
It can't be love any other way. I don't read Jesus's words also as if they were said in anger. I, I notice that that's a tendency among those who teach from this. There's almost a, you know, a kind of sound in it. I don't think it's that. I personally, there's no way of knowing. But to me, it seems more like, like, like sorrowful frustration. And to me, it echoes Ezekiel 33. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people. Why should you die? That to me doesn't speak in a voice of anger. That's frustration and sorrow of one who loves another one who won't hear them. All right, well, so let's read about what happens then. Verse 17, when the 70 returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. And when they were alone, he turned to his disciples and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you've seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Okay, this is where we'll stop this morning. So the mission is a success. You know, the 70 come back and everybody is stoked and it's high fives all around. That, you know, this is, you know, they're stoked saying that even demonic spirits had to submit when Jesus' name is invoked. And Jesus says this strange thing about Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Now, the Satan, remember, in Jewish thinking is the spiritual agent. It's a mysterious character, but this is the spiritual agent of chaos and opposition to God's good order. The Satan held power over the world through sin. And, and Jesus' mission, then, was to break that power. That's part of what the good news is all about. And what Jesus described was an image of that, of the breaking of sin's power to make a way for God's good to, to come in. So falling from heaven means falling from a place of rulership or authority and coming to earth. So that's the concept behind that. His power has been broken. And in essence, what Jesus is saying here is, is that the, the rule of God through Jesus has begun. It's begun through this. The, the, the Satan's control has been relinquished. God's redemption is at work in humanity. And this mission of the 70 and the way that the demonic spirits were reacting was evidence of that, that God's kingdom is actually moving and working now in this world and on this earth in a brand new way. So all of the emblems of evil and chaos. And you got to understand, this is speaking from ancient perspectives on these things, but snakes and scorpions don't leave here today say, I got me, find me a snake. I'm going to step on him and prove that it's not that. These are, this is, this is ancient 
spiritual meditation literature, right? So we have to understand there's a lot of, of, of imagery that's employed in these things. So snakes and scorpions was always, always throughout the ancient world representative of chaos and evil that's there to harm and, and destroy God's order, but also humanity as well. And so he's saying those things are no longer a threat to those who are part of the kingdom of God. Those things that sin's power to destroy us in any eternal sense is ruined now. There's no longer anything for any of us to fear from that perspective. And that is so awesome. That's such an amazing realization to get a hold of. And when we get really stoked about that, Jesus says, yeah, that is awesome. But the really big thing about this is that you get to be citizens of God's kingdom and enjoy this. You are registered in the census. You are reconciled with your creator. You've been brought back to original intent. And this launches Jesus into this joyful prayer where he's thanking God for finally fulfilling what he promised long ago to bless the nations uh, through the, the people of Abraham and the prophets and the kings longed to see that fulfilled and they never saw it in their lifetime. But here, God was doing it. Here, God actually began the movement of this. It's been carrying on ever since through the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely way that God comes in and subverts the power of the Satan and begins to make all things new again. So the joyful conclusion, Jesus' joyful response is actually in response to the joy of the 70. And we have this, this, this moment, this beautiful moment that occurs here where we see that the good news is a source of joy for both God and humanity. Humanity, listen, we got a lot to be stoked about. We know that. We don't have to actually explain that. We're reconciled with God. We're free from the fear of chaos and evil and its consequences. We've got the promise of this transcendent, never-ending life. It's just, it's wonderful. But I'm moved by how exuberant Jesus is in this passage. The word that's used for joy in verse 21 means exuberance in its fullest sense. It's like, it's the, it's like doing cartwheels kind of joy, like that moment. Like, this is so awesome, I'm just going to flip out here for a moment. And I moved with how exuberant Jesus is. In fact, the triunity of God is represented in this joy. Jesus, the Son, moved by the Holy Spirit, rejoices in God the Father's work. So God, in His totality is entering into the joy that humanity can be reconciled back into relationship with him. This is, this is Jesus demonstrating what he'll talk about in parable with the father of the prodigal son. This is the, the love and the joy of a father, of a parent, whose child who's been gone for so long has finally come back and now is, is back safe in the arms of the parent who cares about him. This is the joy that God feels for every one of us when we've come into his kingdom. Let that sink in. The happiest one in this whole section is God. And what's making him so joyful is that the call to come into God's restorative kingdom and return to family has gone out to everyone. It's not just in Israel. It's not just in Samaria. It's going out everywhere. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 22. God is being revealed to everyone, not just Israel or Samaria, but soon everywhere, all the nations are poised to be blessed through the promise to Abraham. Everyone is invited, and God is stoked to have us. What an amazing picture 
of who it is that we're following. And notice then that Jesus said, don't be joyful because there was some success in your ministry efforts there. Because that sort of thing, man, that has its ups and downs. It's going to be happy and not happy all the time. That sort of thing could get our sense of acceptance or our sense of importance tethered to how well we perform. And Jesus wants none of that. He says, be stoked because you belong to God. And God is stoked, not because of their performance, and we're not because of ours, but because we belong to him. God doesn't need us, but God wants us. What an amazing thing. We're his family. And that's how he treats us. I'm telling you, that truth can transform our lives. That simple truth was enough to, to pull me out of the darkness of, of a claustrophobic, legalistic religion. The realization that God loves me, that His grace for me was without bounds, that, that His joy was to have me reconciled with Him. If we can get a hold of that, if you can brush against that truth, it'll transform you. It, it can't help but transform our lives. And that is the underlying grace of the good news and why it's good news why it's good news and i'm telling you we have to and this i'm not going to bog down on this but we have to sit back and begin to examine this what are we representing into this world what does the church represent into this world how good is the news how much like lambs are we how much peace are we bringing to the world around us. I don't know. Something to think about. This is the mission of the good news. It's a call to a mission that all of us share. And it's, it's wonderful news that God is breaking into this world to restore and redeem. Now, it can be sobering news if one chooses to reject it. But for those who will receive it, it is the source of unimaginable joy. So let's remember our calling to this mission. Let's be agents of God's restorative power and peace in the world where we live, where we've been placed, at our workplaces, with our family, with whatever area of people that we interact with. Let's operate from the joy that we belong to God. So whatever chaos Whatever chaos is happening in this world, whatever the scorpions and the serpents are up to, means nothing to us. We walk right on through that stuff, unscathed and un, uh, unimpinged in our ability to have peace in it all. Let's operate from that joy. Let's found our sense of identity and purpose from the fact that God loves us and God wants us. And then let's go about the business of inviting others to enjoy that same acceptance and love. Right on? All right, very cool. Well, Father, we just ask you, Lord, to, to bless this truth to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, will, will enlarge our hearts to not just receive your love, but to receive this mission of expanding your kingdom through sharing your love. Help us, Father, to be carriers of your peace, just like you sent these 70 out to be carriers of your peace, heralds of your redeeming and restorative power in this world. Challenge us, Lord, in those areas in our life where 
Maybe in our life or in our attitude towards the world we live in. Help us to not help us to not dwell on what seems like potential threats. Help us to find confidence. In fact, grow our confidence in your power, Lord God. Grow our confidence in your power so that we can walk through this world, heads held high, not afraid, not angry, not filled with outrage, but as agents of peace that represent the good news that God's on his way and he's setting all things right. Work that in our hearts and lives, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.